Welcome to Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Inda NTR. Hello, Linda. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Pretty good. Just about to have lunch after we chat. <laughs> yeah. Now tell me, is, is, is the sun shining in Moncton like it's shining, shining in St. John? It is. It is. I'm really stoked that it's hot today, actually. Yeah. Are you going to go outdoors for lunch? Uh, not for lunch, but we're going to have an outdoor barbecue of sorts with some friends. Oh, awesome. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot for joining me, uh, Inda. Uh, on, on, on the podcast this week, uh, I talked to uh, Shauna Cole. She's a, a human resources consultant in, in St. John. And uh, she also was one of the featured uh, speakers at uh, last week's uh, Black Lives Matter rally in St. John. And I know you yourself uh, have been going to those rallies in Moncton. Yes, uh, we covered, uh, we helped uh, 919 The Bend cover two of the Black Ma- Black Lives Matter rallies uh, in, in Moncton here. And what's your experience been at, at those rallies? Give me, give me your sense of, you know, what the events have been like, the crowds have been like, the mood and the atmosphere. There was a, like, first of all, there's a lot of people. It, it reminds me of the climate action uh, rally that happened a few months ago. Um, hundreds of people came out um, and people are, I think, really, it's, it's a powerful stance in a way of saying that these things are not okay in our community and everybody else is also standing up with um, those who are, who may be oppressed or, you know, who are facing racism and discrimination um, just to say that they're they're with them um, and standing up against those injustices as well. And I know this part of what we um, we talk about uh, with with uh, Shauna today, Inda, because of course the conversation naturally goes to this place. And I know you you know you in some of your reporting, um, you you've talked to I mean immigrants and 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 refugees are also facing some of the some similar issues in the workplace and in their communities. Yeah, actually, I had too many stories uh, from friends, uh, from acquaintances. Um, of just those kind of barriers that come from discrimination or really talented people being pushed out of um of their jobs or being blocked from promotion because they 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 bring up uh that there's racism or or some people end up leaving these jobs and moving to other cities or other provinces because they didn't feel like the environment was welcoming to them uh so yeah it's it's i mean if we're talking about labor and retaining talent here, it's, it's, uh, it's an issue. Yeah. And, and I know that, um, you know, and this, this comes up in my, my conversation with, with Shauna, there is the hope that, you know, and I mean, yes, be curious about your sense of this. There's, there were thousands of people, um, at this rally in St. John and the energy was really, really positive and, and constructive. And, uh, are you sensing the same thing in in Moncton at the rallies you've been at? That that the energy is constructive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of people, especially people of color, black and indigenous people, are feeling this this uh, frustration. Um, and a lot of people showed up to the um, to the healing walk as well to commemorate Chantel Moore and uh, Rodney Levi. Um, so it's it's a sense of like now everybody's kind of ready to stand up um, and to, to call these things out and to change um, it, our community when it comes to those kind of things. Yeah. And I know this came up at, at the rally in St. John, the speakers addressed it. Um, you know, you can, you can bring thousands of people out to a rally. You can create that, that sense of, you know, optimism and a way of seeing a path forward. Uh, do you, do you feel it yourself? Like, are you, do you, do you feel like we can leverage the energy that comes from people coming together like this to actually make real change in our, in our communities and in our workplaces? I truly hope so, but I think it's really important uh, for my conversations with um, some of my Black and Indigenous friends is that that we don't take this as a trend um, that only, you know, we go to one rally or two rallies and then we, you know, post on social media for a week or two weeks. The the learning and the, the process of uh, dismantling um, discrimination and prejudice and racism has to happen as an act of love every day. Um, that we take on for ourselves 
and also kind of for our workplace and every everything around us really it, it, we need to live and breathe it you know this this kind of um, actions well let's you know let, let, let's hope that that the energy we're seeing and and the positive conversations do you know do lead us to that place uh, and and I know it's it was a huge subject um, that that Sean and I uh, tackled in in our chat and um, so uh, you know why don't we go to that chat now awesome all right. Well, thanks a lot for connecting with me, Inda, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Thanks. Hi, Shauna. Hey, Mark. Thanks very much for joining me. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So, so tell me, you, uh, you live out in Milledgeville, and I think, uh, do you have a home office there? I sure do. I sure do. Yeah. So um, the home office has been getting a little crowded lately, though. We'll tell you that. With uh, an extra, uh, my partner Sean at home, and then um, and then a couple of kids at home for a while there, a three year old and a and a six year old. So it did get a little crowded here in the Milledgeville home office. <laughs> yeah, no, and and we actually named the the show Home Office because when we when we um, when we started the podcast, we were all out of our home offices uh, at Huddle. And uh, we're now starting to move, uh, you know, slowly back into the main office. I'm actually, my, my home office is actually now my, my cottage. And uh, it's this big main, main room in this like wide open cottage, kind of it's pretty small. And um, I'm, I'm the one that's working out of the main cottage. So I have like uh, a pile of kids coming through there all the time now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. It's great for productivity, isn't it? Great for productivity. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing is though, Sean, is I get, I get teased a lot because I'm actually the per- perfect person to put in just kind of the main room of a cottage where people are just passing through all the time because I have my, my grandfather's ability to, uh, you know, who, who died, um, you know, a long time ago, but I've always been told I have this ability to, to tune out, um, everything that's going on around me. So you wouldn't believe the things that the, the a pack of kids anywhere from, from five to, uh, to 12 are doing all around me and I'm not even noticing. I'm working. <laughs> wow. I'm going to need to skill up on that, Mark. Maybe you could also <laughs> offer some training sessions to help those of us who are, who are, uh, more easily distracted. Let's just say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So, uh, I can definitely give some coaching tips there and they, they, <laughs> But but I but it can be a little bit hazardous because you know sometimes uh, you really should know what's going on around you. I've I've had you know my my uh, mother in law and my wife burst uh, in on the cottage and you know I mean, there's like you know a five year old and a you know and a nine year old and a seven year old like baking a cake and <laughs> nice <laughs> nice. And I'm like I don't know what's going on. Um, so tell me in terms of of your office because um, that's actually why I'm now in here at the office because the one thing I can't do at the cottage is uh, is um, is uh, record a podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> unless yep. you wanted to have like four or five kids become part of it, which could right. be fun too. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So tell me your three-year-old and your six-year-old, tell me a little bit about them. Well, uh, my, my three-year-old Devin, he's, he's very active and very into um, dinky cars as a practice. So uh, there were definite points of time where we're sitting here during COVID and trying to get work done in the office. And right beside me, there's some sort of extensive car track being built with vehicle noises in the background as well. So, so getting through that was, uh, was a bit of a challenge to say, uh, to say the least. And then, um, my six-year-old Jaden, he's, um, also a, a busy, busy guy. He's, he's more into, um, that phase of electronics and, and playing with the, the Nintendo and all those sorts of things. But I will say what a relief when the weather got nicer and we could actually start to go outside and play just sort of that, that activity, that change of scenery, um, really, really switched up the whole vibe of feeling sort of crowded and trapped in the house with two little kids that are just sort of on top of you, um, all the time. And of course, as a parent, you know, there's these dynamics of guilt that we, that we face because you feel guilty because you're working and you're not paying attention to your kids and you feel guilty for paying attention to the kids and not working and, and so on. So it's been nice to see some relief from that with, first of all, nicer weather um, and also with, that, with the daycares reopening. So, so to get just sort of a little bit more um, separated time, I suppose, to, to be both a, a parent and to also um, do, some, do some work. 
Yeah, no, and it's part actually part of the reason why um, why we ended up moving out to uh, the uh, the cottage that we have. It's you know it's pretty pretty rustic and and pretty small, um, but because our kids are are nine and eleven now, we're kind of still keeping them at home. Uh, so our compromise was to take them to a place where they would have that kind of open free play, and and their cousins were around. Um, cause we were all, I'm sure it was the same with you. We were all kind of feeling, you know, cooped up and cooped up in the house. And there was always that conflict of, you know, you're working and you know, you should be working, but then, you know, the kids were doing schoolwork or, you know, they wanted your attention for something and you want to be able to give it to them. Right. It's, it's, it, it's, it has been kind of challenging in that way. So it kind of motivated us just to pack them all up with the cat and the cat's thrilled. And because he's a city cat, but he, he, he loves spending the summers at this cottage wandering around the woods. We barely ever see him. Nice. And nice. Uh, so, yeah, so that's part of the reason why we did that. So uh, we're now kind of getting, uh, getting, getting that break. And then, uh, you know, both of us kind of sneaking into the office here uh, when we can and, and doing some work from, from an office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a challenging um, a challenging time on, on all, on all fronts. Right. But I mean, it worked out really well for your cat. So, so that's nice for the, for the city cat to get the, the country vacation. Oh, the, the cat's thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from, you know, st- stuffing him in a cage and getting him there. It, it, he's all, he's fine with it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thanks a lot, Sean, because I really appreciate, um, you, uh, you, you joining me, uh, you know, to chat and, uh, and, and I was at the, uh, at the Black Lives Matter um, rally, you know, last week in, in King Square in St. John and, and was really inspired by uh, everyone's speech and also inspired by the size of the crowd and, and, and the, you know, and the, the enthusiasm for, for gathering together like that. And um, I definitely wanted to get into your, your thoughts on that. Uh, but I think a good starting point, we, we, this, this morning we republished, uh, a piece that you had posted on LinkedIn, and uh, and and I'd love to get you to to read that for us to start, if you can. Sure thing, sure thing. So um, so so here it is. I heard a hiring manager say the N word. He didn't know that I am black because I am white too. I have heard things that white people may otherwise censor in their conversations because they assume I am white. I listen to R&B music, but my kids have blonde hair. The first time I heard the N-word, I was in kindergarten. I saw my black cousin attacked. In grade one, a white classmate told me my dad was poopy. In grade 12, that same classmate apologized to me. It bothered her all those years. Straighten your hair, they tell me. You'll look more professional. I was never more uncomfortable than when we read To Kill a Mockingbird in grade four. My three-year-old thinks we change color as we get older. His grampy is black. I was scared, sad, and angry when I heard the hiring manager say the N-word. He didn't want to interview the candidate. His name sounded too black. I said nothing. I only told my mom. It made me cry. It made my mom cry too. The next day, I put a photo of me and my interracial family on my desk. I'm holding my black father's arm. The look of fear on that manager's face told me he knew what he had done. We all have responsibilities at home to educate our children about anti-racism. And we have responsibilities at work too. So much, uh, so much going on in in that piece, uh, Shauna, and it's it, like in, incredibly poetic, which is why I, I wanted you to 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 read it out loud. Um, tell me what what inspired you to write it. You know the, the the words that are that are in the piece, Mark. I I feel like over the years I had kind of written versions of this over and over again to sort of cope with what, what I was going through, um, a lot, a lot sort of in, in silence. Um, and for, for years I, I, I did, I had sort of these mini pieces and journals written where I wrote down my experiences because sharing those experiences was just not an option at the time. And then when, when things changed in the world, 
almost overnight, almost overnight or seemingly overnight um, with, with that attack of George Floyd, it was like a whole tone shifted where, where there was more acceptance and more openness to share stories. I felt empowered to share the story. I felt compelled to share the story. I felt like I had to share the story. Um, and I felt the sense of responsibility about it. Um, so basically I thought I, I am so fired up about this and I've had all these feelings and experiences in me all these years. And I feel strong enough and ready enough to share the story. So I wrote the post and I thought, um, I thought to myself, I thought, you know what? I feel, I feel good about sharing my story in this way. And I hope that it does inspire people. Um, it did surprise me how much it inspired, uh, people and, and, uh, how much the post was shared and, and received. Um, but really, really in terms of, uh, what, what got me to the point of being able to share this really world events and this whole, um, black lives matter movement and a changing dialogue just opened it up for me to feel comfortable to be able to share this story, which is so important because it's stories like this that make issues of racism really, really real. Um, and that's why we need to continue to share our experiences. Take me back a, a little bit to your, your childhood, which you obviously, you know, talk a lot about in the, in, well, throughout that piece, but definitely, you know, in the beginning. Yeah. So, um, as a kid growing up, uh, as a kid growing up, I mean, we were, I, th I think our family is just sort of like used to stairs, right? Because a black man and a white woman and, and two, um, two mixed children. And quite honestly, I, I feel like I'm, I'm really kind of old to be biracial. Um, so certainly, certainly stairs were, were a large part of, uh, of my childhood. And I feel like that's something I became fairly accustomed to and was able to, to put in a compartment and move on. Um, with with the stairs, but but things that truly stand out for me because I was um, my best friend. My best friend growing up um, in my childhood was actually my cousin, who happened to be black. So I spent a lot of time at her house, and I spent a lot of time with her. So it was almost like as a child, um, I saw a lot, her experience uh, a lot of racism. And the feeling of helplessness, but also awareness that this problem existed from, from a, really, uh, a really young age um, is something that stands out to me as being really pivotal in my childhood. But this was at a time when we didn't really have these meaningful discussions about racism or what drives racism. There weren't discussions like that. Uh, happening at the time. And that's, that's why I think where we're, where we're headed now and having these discussions and having these rallies like the, the Black Lives Matter movement um, here in St. John um, is, is so, so important. Was it confusing for you as a child? Because sometimes people that you, you know, you would meet and other kids wouldn't, wouldn't realize that you were black, right? Yeah, well, it was, you know what, I, you know, I get a lot of mostly um, just because I, I think like, first of all, I think racial identity is a, an individual, um, an individual thing. Like, so I, I personally, I identify as being biracial, um, but that's not going to be the same for every biracial person. They might align more closely with their black side or their white side. And there's a bunch of things that sort of input to that. So your appearance is one of them because a person could be biracial, but perhaps look black or white, right? So just sort of depending. Um, and also I think just sort of your, your personal experience and, um, what you're into can, can drive how you identify. For me, I've always identified as being biracial. Um, and I think that that's a reflection of both sort of, um, my upbringing and involvement on, on both sides of my family, but also my appearance. I've never really looked quite white. Right. So I, I went my whole life with people, um, like weird stuff, weird stuff of, you know, you're in Brunswick square and someone asks you like, well, Hey, 
where are you from? Like that's, that's an actual thing that happens um, to me in life because I don't look white, but I don't look black. So, so certainly, um, certainly in terms of um, identity as a child, yeah, it was, it was like a little bit confusing. Um, but I think more so for the people outside looking in who very desperately wanted to place me in a category more so than, um, than me for, for myself. Um, because my experience as, as a kid was, I, I was so accepted on both sides of my family. So the white side and the black side, I was just, I was so accepted in both of those worlds, um, that I didn't, I didn't feel like an outsider by, by any stretch, but out, out in society, there's kind of this desire, I, I must place you in, in a category. And I didn't always necessarily fit um, as people thought that I should. And it's put you in situations too, like you had with, with that HR manager where, you know, they, they opened up in ways that they wouldn't have had they known your biracial background. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I I mean, some of, some of the things that, um, through, throughout my, my professional life that, that I've heard have been quite shocking and, um, and and it's people's biases and people's perceptions come, come out in, in that. Right. So, so in this case of, of the post I wrote, this, this manager was totally assuming, um, assuming that I, I was white and, and didn't have any sort of black heritage in me. And that, that sort of intersection between black and white, where you live in a biracial world, um, can be, can be really eye-opening because you're kind of like a spy. You're like a little spy in between on both sides. So you can see what people, uh, what people really think by times. Um, but it also, also, I think for me personally, my experience with that is that I also have always felt this like strong sense of like responsibility to do what's right by whoever, um, by whoever is, is being marginalized in a given situation. Um, so this example at work, when, when I had this experience with, um, with, with that hiring manager, I, I did, I feel this duty that you must know that it's not okay to say this in front of me. And you must know that, that I'm part black. You need to have this information at the very least to, um, to, to, to feel, um, to, and I don't know if he felt bad, maybe, maybe, maybe the manager felt bad or didn't, but regardless um, to have the awareness that that was not an appropriate thing to say to me or anyone for that matter. So t- t- tell me how, how have things changed, you know, for, for you growing up, like just in terms of society's attitudes, I mean, you, you, you know, you now have kind of a long window now, uh, in, in terms of, of being able to see change and also lack of change. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, like in terms of my own experience, I don't know, uh, if there has actually, it pains me to say this, if there has actually been, um, much change. What I found so shocking about the experience of sharing this post was the amount of people who responded by saying like, I can't believe this happens here or people saying like, it doesn't happen here. And, and this just cannot be true. So, um, I'm, I'm excited that so many people showed up to the black lives matter movement. And I think that that's, um, certainly a step in the absolute right direction and people are starting to have conversations, but realistically it was two weeks ago when, when I put this post up and two weeks ago, I was still hearing from people who were saying like, I cannot believe this happened here. So still, um, so still, I mean, throughout my childhood, sort of this whole lack of awareness and a sense of denial, I, I think around acknowledging race and how that shapes different experiences for people. And I, I think I was seeing that continue up until two weeks ago when people were saying like, what, this happened here? This happened in our community? Yes, it did, folks. <laughs> it did happen here. So um, so hopefully that we're going to see positive momentum continue, certainly seeing on social media, 
sort of this real desire and willingness to learn and to change and to be better and how can I help and all these all these sorts of things. So seeing um, a different tone in in sort of the, the Facebook news feed with, with people um, seeking out education around this topic in particular. Tell me about the uh, the themes that you touched on in in your talk at the rally. I um I I shared in my in my talk at the at the rally. I, I shared um, I kicked that off with a story about my um, my my three year old son that I really like. I just love. I just love. And I I know um, a lot of the feedback I got was was that this is what stood out to people. My three year old son looks like he's um, looks white, and he is absolutely fascinated just fascinated with um my father um who he calls gunky my father's black he is fascinated with his skin so it is nothing to see little devin like with his little white hands just touching gunky's face checking it out checking out his hands he is fascinated with it and uh he actually asked me one day when will i turn brown like gunky so I thought it that was just like a really powerful moment to me that I wanted to share because here you have a three-year-old kid who sees nothing but really sort of his gunky, this nice man and his skin is interesting and he he's acknowledging that. Like my three-year-old's acknowledging that his skin is different and it's interesting to me. Um, but still just coming from this real place of love and acceptance and kindness before he goes out into the <laughs> the world and gets all the uh the stories and the the flawed history that so many of us have have been taught just initially coming from this place of uh admiration and curiosity um so so my talk really kicked off with with uh with that piece around um around around Devin that I just find so impactful and I feel like all of us can learn um, can learn so much uh, from, and and really the undertone of the the entire talk was this whole idea of keeping it real. And when I shared my post on social media, it was really to say like, "Hello, our community here in the Maritimes. It happens here." Um, and that tone and that message, um, I think, continued in my in my talk on on Sunday, where it's about keeping it real. Let's get out of a, a denial before we can ever start to affect positive change. We first need to create an awareness. So before the change can happen, everyone needs to be aware of what the issue is and that racism is here. Um, so to me, that was, was certainly the most important, um, important takeaway from, from the talk was to get out, out of this sense of, uh, of denial. I also shared, um, my general sort of admiration, uh, for, for my own parents who, who were married in 1978, a white woman and a black man and the power that is in that story, um, as well. These were, you know, a young couple and despite, despite what friends were telling them they should or shouldn't do and what family was telling them they should, should or shouldn't do, they said, we're going to challenge, we're going to challenge the status quo and we're going to do what feels right for us and, and get married. And I really think, and I hope that what people got from the talk was a message of inspiration, a message of love and kindness and challenging what is traditionally normal to move beyond what all those norms are to start to ask questions about where they came from and to challenge those norms if they just don't feel right for us. Right. And, and was there a, a little bit of that too, of, of, you know, recognizing, you know, difference in, in, in terms of skin color, but that not, leading towards, you know, notions of inequality and racism. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, so, and also the discussion was around like the acknowledgement piece as well. Right. So get out of denial that we don't see skin color because we do like, we absolutely see skin color when my three-year-old is sitting there looking at my father's skin going, huh, isn't this interesting? He, he sees skin color. So, 
Um, so that tells me that's, I would say this is evidence to support the idea that we see, uh, we see skin color and we need to stop like kind of brushing that under the rug and saying it, it doesn't matter and move away from saying things like, I didn't see the person. I saw the color. Well, you saw the person, you, you, you saw the color, right? You saw the, you saw the color, um, in addition, um, in addition to what was in inside, inside the person, but you saw the color too. And that color becomes a really, really important part of a person's story. So for me and in, in my family, um, I would say like, don't, please don't erase skin color from, from my story because the story essentially um, essentially changes the moment you start to do that, right? So a story of a white couple getting married is very different. Um, getting married in 1978 is very different than a story of a, a black and white couple getting married in 1978. So to take away that skin color is really to to rewrite the story, um, and this is something we absolutely uh, need to need to stop doing. Acknowledge the skin color, just like Devin does. Have your parents, now I know obviously you would have, you know, witnessed a lot growing up, but, but have they, have they shared with you, you know, some of the, some of the challenges that they would have had over the years? Yeah. My, my mom tells, um, my mom tells stories of, um, interventions that her, her friends, um, some friends tried to have with her about like, you're crazy to marry this black man. Um, and there was no convincing her. She was like, I'm going to marry him. Right. So, so she'll tell stories of, of this sort of, um, intervention. Um, there was at the time there was really, um, like in the, in the seventies, there was really sort of this concern over mixed children, um, as well. So I know from my mother's perspective, um, feedback, um, from, from friends and family was certainly around, if you have babies with these, with this guy, they're going to be so messed up and it's not going to work out. And there's going to be all these problems, um, with, uh, with the children. So, um, so I know, I know there was just this real sense of discouragement. It was so abnormal because even if you look at the history, um, like interracial marriage was never, um, wasn't illegal in Canada, but it was illegal, um, in the U S for, for a number of years and, and was only legalized in like, I think it was like around 67. So we're talking like, it's still pretty new in the history in the seventies for this, for this interracial, um, couple to be, to be together. So certainly there was concern. There was concern, um, for, for mom in particular, getting involved with this black guy they just, they must have had an incredible sense of, you know, who, who they were and what their values were to just rise above all of that. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's what I find like, I, so inspiring, um, about their story as well. And, and like, they literally will be like, well, there's nothing really special about us. We just, you know, we loved each other and we did what was right. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, do you know how, like that's, it's pretty profound, like considering all the, um, all the adversity that they would have had to overcome to actually get to, um, get to the wedding. Right. So, um, so, but yeah, I mean, both, both of them are, are strong-willed and principled, um, principled people. And I, I think they demonstrated that by doing exactly, um, exactly what felt right for them at, at the time. And, and here we are like 42 years later and, and they're still married. So. Tell me how, how you felt when, when you're, you know, at this event uh, in Queen Square on Saturday and, you know, there are thousands of people there. I haven't, I've never seen such a big crowd gathered in, in St. John and you're hearing the stories of the other speakers and you're getting up to talk yourself. Um, take me through that a little bit. How did you feel? Oh, well, I think so. So first of all, I feel like I, um, like in the moment sort of leading up preparing to it, I was very much sort of like just in my head getting ready. And I feel like I didn't kind of have full line of sight in, in my own mind, even as to how many people were there at that moment and how big of an event this ended up being. I think it was, um, Ralph Thomas said like he didn't, he couldn't fathom 
this this amount of uh, people coming to to show up for for the the black community. So I think in those moments leading up to my talk, I was a little bit oblivious. And then I stood up there and I looked out and I was like, oh my gosh, this crowd goes on forever. Um, and I think the final numbers were, were somewhere around like the 4,000 mark. So it was a huge, a huge crowd. Um, I actually was completely surprised by how much of an emotional experience it was to be a part of this event. Um, I, the, the feeling of overwhelm, like just the support when the crowd was chanting, um, this whole feeling of being heard and people actually caring that, that these sorts of, uh, these sorts of bad things happen in our community and this demonstration of, we want to do better and we want to, we want to, um, we want to do more. And I, I do remember, in the minutes before I was, I was going to talk, looking at my father and thinking to myself, like, stop looking at him, Shauna. Cause it's just like, I was so overwhelmed with emotion that I could feel like, I was like, I'm going to cry. And I'm not like, I'm not a crier, but I could see dad almost getting emotional, um, about it, uh, about it too. So you had to pull back a minute in order to, um, to keep it together. But just the the messages, um, the messages and the the speakers from, you know, the black and the the white community in St. John coming together in this sort of way to show unity towards doing better. You, like you couldn't help but feel overwhelmed by uh, by the amount of support and all of it directed to the same cause and this whole idea that Black Lives Matter. I'm curious, what, what did your, your father say to you af after that? Did you talk to him about the event itself? <laughs> I think my dad is literally still shaking his head a little bit about the whole, about the whole thing. Um, so I, I mean, he's, he's my, um, <laughs> he's my dad. I've always been uh, sort of like the daddy's girl type. And I, I know when I approached him after I, I talked again, I could see you dad, like holding back your emotions. And, um, all he did was give me a hug. And he said, uh, he said, good job. And, and there he was with, uh, Devin on him, three-year-old Devin, because that's where, where he always is holding Devin and, uh, and, and told me that he was proud of me. How did that feel when he told you that? Oh, well, I feel like, I feel like the support kind of from him, because I do, there is something weird that happens when you go out and like use your voice in this kind of way. Like there's this weird vulnerability that goes along with it. So to have the, the support from, my dad and also from like, like I got messages from that my, my dad's sister, I, we spent so much time with his family growing up and all of those, you see the, the family photos of me and my cousins and sort of my brother and I super light skinned and all the black cousins. I think I got a message from every black cousin just thanking me and commending me for, for doing that. And it was, it was so it was so meaningful to get that feedback from, uh, from family members, um, that it, it really, it really does validate that taking the time and sharing the story, um, is, is wor a worthwhile, um, thing to do for, for the community and to be a part of affecting this, this sort of, um, this sort of change. And, and sometimes being, um, being, you know, I'm, I'm not black, I'm, I'm not white. I'm in that, again, in that in-between biracial space. Um, I always want to be respectful of, of both parts of me, of both parts of, of my heritage and getting that sort of feedback back from my, from my family, um, who are both black and white and saying that, you know, this was an accurate representation of, um, of experiences and, and it was well received, um, is, is just really, really meaningful. When you, you know, talk to your dad and you, and you, you know, you hear from your family members about this, do you, 
do you have a sense of, of confidence? Like, do you have a feeling that, that real change can come out of something like this? Like how, how, how do you feel about this and how does your family talk about it? Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, I, 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 in my, in my life, we've, we've never taught, like had discussions on, um, open forums like this on Facebook, on social media, with friends, with family. We've never really had, um, these open discussions about racism. We've never really made it ours in this community. We've never stood up and owned it as one of our problems. We just say like, no, no, that's what happens in America. But now that we're taking that ownership and accountability and that those steps to, to get the education around it. Yeah. I feel like we are moving in a direction of positive change and when you see um, when you see you know the, the event organizers uh, organizers of, of Black Lives Matter and what they were able to to put together and pull together and unite a community in such a short period of time, it shows me that yeah, change is going to happen. Um, I think initially when when I started having sort of these heart to hearts with with my dad um, about some of the stuff that you know, we've experienced over the years and, and maybe hadn't really talked about, um, in, in any sort of meaningful ways. I, I feel like at first, at first he's almost like cynical about it. You know, he's in his sixties. My dad has had some experiences and I'm sure I don't even know half of them. Um, but it's almost like as we were moving through the process of, um, you know, getting ready for, for the rally and seeing the change of tone online and seeing just this real attention, this world kind of call to action around racism, um, I can see him moving towards optimism. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, people who have spent years in their entire lives, especially the, the older generation dealing with, with matters of racism in, in various ways, it is a hard thing to wrap your head around. Like, is real change going to happen? Um, but I think it is. I think it is. I think it's time and, and I think the, the world's ready for it. And I know you, you work in, in human resources, right? Um, I do. And you had that experience of that, of that, you know, that hiring manager, that you wrote about, um, tell me about, you know, making, making change in, in, in a place that where it really counts, right. In, in, I mean, it counts everywhere, but in, in that workplace where there's been so many problems over generations. Well, I, I think, I, I think for, I think the conversation is the first, the first piece of it, the, the fact that we're having the, the conversation, um, because like I said, like for a lot, and I, I mean, I could tell you, I could tell you a number of other stories, unfortunately, that have happened in the, in the workplace that are, that are, um, matters of, of racism and, and discrimination as well. Um, but I, I certainly think the first step is, is this piece around awareness and education. Um, and, and again, this whole idea of let's get out of denial and just acknowledge that stuff is happening in the Maritimes too. This is not like, oh, it's happening in only big cities or whatever. It's happening here too. So I, I think the mo most important thing um, that companies can can do at this point um, when, it, when it comes to, to managing these matters of racism or at, at work, I think the most important they, thing they can do is educate their company's leaders on how to be sensitive to that. I think that um, I think that equipping leaders to understand ideas like unconscious bias in really much more meaningful ways. Um, sure, I'm sure everyone has come across the term throughout, you know, throughout their studies in university or whatever. Um, but I'd say, like, when's the last time you went back and sort of revisited that definition and applied it to your practical day to day work? and see how it's sneaking in. So there's there's such a big piece that's um, education. There's such a big piece that's awareness. There's such a big piece that's internal to the individual. It's like a soul-searching thing that leaders must do in order to affect change in organizations. 
and and right and that that those notions of of unconscious and and conscious bias are are so critical here right i mean coincidentally enough i'm actually in the midst of of a of a course at work um exploring unconscious bias um by coincidence right now and uh and i know like shauna like and i'm sure this has come up with your work like it's been a big discussion. Um, obviously, is a huge discussion inside the the Black uh, Black Lives Matter movement, but it's also been a conversation that we've been also having around immigration and and you know the stats and the stories that tell us that that you know immigrants' last names can be like just a huge barrier to getting you know getting from submitting the resume to getting an interview, right? So we're it's 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 something that. It's so critical for us to tackle right now. Oh, for sure. For, and I mean, like for, for so many different reasons too, right? So, and the immigration one is an interesting discussion too, because that's something that I saw time and time again, um, of, of, um, managers not having a desire to meet with someone because they're making assumptions around their, um, fluency in English typically. Right. And they're saying like, oh, this person's not going to be a fit because of that last name. It's an interesting perspective to have as well, um, like being involved, um, teaching at, um, at at the university here, particularly in the MBA program, which has a number of, of newcomer students. And as an instructor in that program, I'm often sort of blown away by the, the different experiences um, that these students bring and the talents that are in the room. So it's it's difficult for me to reconcile and then you can't get a job, but then I go, oh, wait, I, I, that's that's why you can't get a job because there's, there's something happening in a hiring process that's potentially getting you, uh, getting you screened out. Right. And I'm sure from your experience of seeing it in workplaces, uh, some of it's conscious and then some of it's not, right? Right. Oh, right. Right. And, and it's almost like, um, like the, the unconscious piece is, is so, so scary and so difficult to overcome. Right. Because that is such a journey for an individual to go on and is so intrinsic to the individual and so reliant on, on the individual, um, that it's, it's a real challenge to, to change that mindset. Cause you gotta get kind of deep, right. And be like, where is this coming from? Why do I think this? And, and sometimes we do have sort of these deep seated experiences that drive, um, drive that bias. That's so problematic, um, particularly in, in the workplace when it, when it comes to, to matters of, of recruitment. Right. And, and because you, I mean, you, you know, you said yourself earlier that, that when you first published this piece, you, you had a lot of that feedback of this really happens here kind of idea that, I mean, that, that, tells you how how profound that the un- the unconscious aspect of this is right yeah yeah i mean it was it was legit like kind of scary like um to see th- to see i mean and i'm not talking like two inboxes <laughs> i'm i i've received i don't upwards of 50 messages of people saying like what this happened this happened in saint john this happened here um Yes. <laughs> like, so, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't like two people. It was, it was a volume of people who found this absolutely shocking. And then I thought, well, I'm happy I shared it because now you, now you know, um, this is something that's happening, um, at the companies here, but it's, it's not until we start to share those stories and share those experiences, um, that we can, um, we must share those stories and experiences in order to start to, um, change the, the, the conversation. It must uh, amaze you that you went from all those messages in your inbox to thousands of people in King Square in such a short amount of time. Was there a, what, what happened there exactly? Was there a kind of awakening with people? I don't know. I like, I honestly, I don't even, I feel like, um, I feel like with the, with the piece, I, I just, I, I think because people might tend to know me for like some roles that I played in the, in the community as a recruiter and some roles that I played, um, as an instructor. So I feel like there was, 
I wasn't a stranger. Do you know what I mean? Like I wasn't, I wasn't someone from the outside coming in and sharing this story that you can just sort of easily brush off. No, no, I'm someone you worked with. I'm someone you maybe took a class from at, uh, at the university. I'm someone you met at a networking event. Like I'm a real live person that you might might know. Um, and if you don't know, you probably know someone who knows someone who knows me, right? Because it's it's the maritime. So I, I think that the reason there, there was perhaps so much um, visibility to that post was because I'm here. I'm not a stranger. I have a perspective that is local to, um, to the area. And then sort of taking that to, um, it, the, the posts have been shared sort of, um, so extensively on, on Facebook in particular, um, that, that the organizer of, of Black Lives Matter, um, had, had reached out to me, um, to invite me to participate in the, in the speaking engagement. And I was, I was so overwhelmed and, and like scared, but excited, um, to, to be a part of that. I feel like all of us who attended that event, who had, um, an opportunity to, to speak at that event, who did the walk, who sat in the moment of silence. I feel like we were all a moment of history, like a really important piece of history in, um, in our city and in our community. What did they share with you? How did they how did they feel coming out of that event? I I think that um, what I've heard from um, the event organizer, um, his name is Matthew Martin. Uh, he's he's received lots of um, lots of positive feedback about um, about the the event overall. Sort of the the level of um, respectful conduct from from such a large crowd, right? So so to have such a large large crowd and and for everything to be managed um, in such a respectful way is is really something that that should be um, recognized. Um, a real desire to sort of continue to do something positive in our community to keep momentum going would be the other key outcome um, of that event. So I, I know he's continuing to work on things and we don't know what that looks like um, just yet, um, but I know him and, and the team are, are fully committed to continue um, down this, this path of education, awareness, and, and a focus on, on Black Lives Matter. And in, in terms of how we take some of these, you know, these discussions and, and lessons into our workplaces, uh, what are some of the things that you're looking at doing with your, your own business? Well, I, I was, I was so, um, I was so like just inspired by the whole experience of the post and the speaking that I thought like I was compelled to do something. Um, so, so my business is primary in HR, HR and, and career consultancy. Um, and I had always dreamed, I had dreamed I wanted this YouTube channel where I was going to share, um, share knowledge and information. So I am going for it. Um, career interrupted on YouTube is my new channel where I'm, I'm sharing um, information on, on how to be more fulfilled at work, finding your career purpose, but all of this with undertones of overcoming bias. Like if you're a newcomer and you've got that resume and you're having a tough time getting it through the screening process, there's gonna be resources there for you on that. There's gonna be resources for people who are saying like, I heard this racial slur in the workplace. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? How do I manage that? in a positive and a productive way because racism's wrong no matter what we need to manage it in a way that is positive and productive though in the workplace right because you want to protect the career that you've worked hard to build you want to get the best result so i'm sharing information with um with folks on on how to be professional through these interactions that are largely pretty uh, pretty emotional and hopefully, you know, we have we have a good starting point here for this. I mean, I only experienced the um, the rally in St. John, but I know these have been taking place in you know in Fredericton, in Moncton, in Halifax, and in in other small places around the region. And you know, one of the things that really struck me from that event, and I'm sure it was the same with you, is the day before I was monitoring some of the social media conversation and. And I don't need to tell you that gets negative, right? And it gets, it gets, it can go bad quickly. And 
somebody was sharing, you know, whether or not it was a safe place to take kids. And, you know, here I am reading this social media feed thinking, well, my nine-year-old and 11-year-old are going. And, uh, but I was struck by the fact that this person would automatically take that, oh, this isn't, this isn't the right place to take your kids. And, and then we're thousands of people in this square and there are children everywhere. And there, there's an air of, you know, positivity and there's an air of sharing, um, that, you know, you kind of leaving that kind of event. And I did hear this a lot, Shauna, from, you know, from you and from other people, that notion that we have to take that positive energy into our everyday lives from here on in. So it's not just a, you know, it's not just a feeling that we shared at a large rally, you know, you know, in June of, you know, 2020. Yes, absolutely. And my kids were there too for their like, like I, so, so absolutely an air of positivity. And, and that's really, that's really where the change can start to happen when we focus on what we want the outcome to be, um, rather than all of the bad stuff. Sure. We got to acknowledge the bad stuff and work through it for sure. That's the reality of it. Um, but, but the path towards change comes through awareness and then ultimately, ultimately, um, shifting, shifting our actions in a, in a positive, in a productive, uh, in a productive way. And, and really, um, when you say that Mark, like that's really why I wanted to get this dream career interrupted YouTube channel started. Um, because I want people to feel empowered to be really, really positive, um, about, um, about the opportunity that the new climate brings and to be really, really positive about how they can manage that in their workplaces and come from a place of leadership and to use their leadership qualities and, and the things that, um, and the things that they've learned uh, along their own journey to affect change in a really positive way. Well, yeah, because some of these some of these issues, and you you face them yourself in, in the workplace. You witness them. Um, it it's tough stuff, right? So, but so I, I just, I'm guessing that from your your perspective, you need to be able to take that that positive energy into those really difficult situations. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think, I mean, um, in in any situation, how we communicate is is key. Um, and I, I think it's important that we're all equipped to have, um, the right skills to communicate, uh, in a, in a positive way to work towards, um, towards a positive income for, for everyone involved in the discussion. Well, thanks very much, Sean. I, I really appreciate this. Is, is there something that, um, that we haven't, uh, talked about that, um, that we should, uh, that you wanted to raise? No, I think, um, I think we got it covered, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I can, I can let you, I can let you back to your, your, your quiet space now <laughs> in, in, in your office. <laughs> my, my kid free space, right? Cause we're always just keeping it real and I'm just going to love my kid free space while I can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but actually I should, before I let you go, cause I was I've been thinking about that and, so you know, so you told the story about you know about about your three year old um, in your speech. How do you how do you feel um, you know with 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 your kids now starting to grow older? What what kind of a world are they going to face, and do you hope they face? I I really um, I really hope, and I and I am hopeful that that things are going to look different for them. I um, I hope I'm raising children to be um, to be leaders and to be, um, to be positive in the world and to stand up for, for what they know is right. Um, and I hope, I hope, and I think the world is moving towards a direction where, um, sort of this, this whole idea of, of racism and, and, um, penalizing someone for, for the color of their skin is just, it's no longer going to be accepted um, it's no longer going to be tolerated. So my hope for my kids is that they never, ever have to see 
you know, gunky go through some of the stuff that I saw gunky go through. Um, I hope my kids never, ever have to see their black friends or their black family um, get beat up for no reason. Um, but more than that, but more than that, I hope that they see a world where colors, we recognize differences, but colors come together to do what's good and what's right and what's best for the community and what's um, best for the world. All right. Well, thank you so much, Shauna. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Mark. All right. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. You've been listening to episode eight of Huddle's new podcast, Home Office. And thank you, Shauna, for joining us on this episode. And thank you, Inda, for sharing your perspective on what's going on in Moncton. And uh, Huddle Home Office is produced by Sharice Letson, Tyler McLean, and me, Mark Legier. And you can find uh, Home Office on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. And be sure to search for Huddle Home Office on one of those platforms, subscribe, listen to past episodes, and uh, stay tuned for the next one. We will talk to you next week.